Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for many of the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hello and welcome to Texas Medical Association's Practice Well podcast. I am Dr. Christina Lee, Director of Public Health at TMA. And our guest today is Dr. Trish Pearl, Chief of the Infectious Disease Division at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Pearl is also on TMA's COVID-19 Task Force and Committee on Infectious Diseases. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about everyday activities that people may want to engage in. It's summer, a lot of us have been cooped up for a long while, and certainly physicians have been asked questions by their patients about what's safe or not safe to do. But before we dive into that, I was hoping, Dr. Pearl, that you could provide a little bit of context for our listeners about what's happening right now here in Texas. Where would you say we're at in regards to fighting this pandemic? So as many of our listeners are aware, right now Texas is really in a phase where we're seeing a lot of growth in the epidemic. And we're measuring this in multiple different ways. But first of all, we're seeing that not only are, um, as our testing is increasing, but the percent positivity is increasing, suggesting that we just have more dissemination of the virus within the community. We are seeing um, evidence of the consequences of infection with significant strains on the healthcare system, uh, uh, systems with increasing emergency room visits, 
increasing hospitalizations, and actually even more recently increasing um, intensive care unit stays. So at this particular juncture, we're in what we would call an exponential phase growth, where we're seeing a lot of transmission and a lot of the consequences of what happens in this kind of epidemic or pandemic. I see. And, and so now I'd like to talk about the risk chart. And some of our listeners may have seen TMA's uh, Know Your Risk During COVID-19 chart that has gotten quite a bit of unexpected worldwide attention. Uh, Dr. Pearl, could you share with us a little bit about the, the premise of the chart, its development, and its purpose? Uh, absolutely. So as many of the listeners know, we've talked a lot about we want you to social distance, we want you to wear a mask, we want you to do hand hygiene, but we've not really been able to put that into a sort of granular examples of what are we really talking about and what does that mean. And we've also been trying to change a little bit the discussion from, it's not that we don't want you doing anything, but we want you to be doing things smartly. So the premise of the risk chart was really to identify common activities and give people a sense of what is the risk associated with it. And we were trying to highlight certain concepts. And the concepts that we were trying to highlight include things like group activities tend to be more high risk than non-group activities. Indoor activities are more high risk than outdoor activities. Um, and, And really, we just wanted to give people examples of what does that mean. Um, so that they can begin to assimilate this new normal, if you will, into um, their daily lives. Sure. And, and obviously, it, it was not possible to put every single activity that people might engage in onto one chart. If, if someone has a question about the risks related to an activity that isn't on the chart, do you have just some general tips or considerations for people to help them make smarter decisions? Um, Well, I would go back to what I just said. I think that um, absolutely, but group activities where you are unable to social distance are going to be higher risk. Any kind of activity where there's a lot of Uh, shouting, screaming, anything where you're going to be forcing, uh, force talking or propelling your um, respiratory, uh, your respiratory uh, secretions, if you will, are going to be higher risk kind of activities. Indoor is higher risk than outdoors. Um, And so, Really, those are the key fundamental kinds of um, uh, differentials that we were trying to identify. And an example might be, you know, one of the highest risk activities is going to a bar. Um, You know, people are close together and there's a lot there's a lot of noise background noise in bars so people tend to be speaking really loudly and when you do that you're projecting not only your voice but any of the um um potential 
organisms that are in your mouth can actually potentially be spread or transmitted a little bit farther. So that would be a higher risk activity than say if you went to the park on a picnic with your family where it was much easier for everyone to be six feet away from each other. And, you know, even though there may be some yelling and, you know, as kids are running around, it's again in an outdoor activity where you have very good ventilation. And so it's it's just a different dynamic. You know, another example might be, um, you know, an example would be camping would be an activity that we would consider quite low risk. You're outside, there's a lot of air, there's good ventilation. Um, whereas an indoor activity such as um, going to a gym would be a much more high risk activity. Sure. And, and I kind of want to jump off of that one example of, of going to the gym. So it's, it's a high risk activity based off of the chart. If I decide that it's just been too long. I've been working from home for the past four to five months and all of this cooped up inactivity is adding up and I just have to go to the gym. What sort of protective measures would you recommend I do in order to best protect myself whenever I go to the gym to work out? So there, there, I I look at this as two different, uh, in two different ways. There's what you can do for yourself. And then there is looking at what are the um, owners of, of the gym actually doing for you? And what kinds of single signals are they giving you that they're actually trying to make sure that the environment is safe as it can be? Uh, so the kinds of things that I would look at from an environmental perspective is, you know, do they have a lot of hand hygiene station? Do they have alcohol hand gel everywhere? Are the treadmills, etc., spread apart at least at least six feet apart? Um, are they wiping down the equipment before and after each use? So those are the kinds of things. Um, just you know, what is happening in that gym? Are the trainers and the people at the desks wearing masks? You know, are they trying to make it as safe as possible for you? And then from your own perspective, then you also can be very actively involved in this and make sure that you are wiping down the equipment in case someone forgot to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, If possible, can you wear a mask um, in these activities that that you're doing? And, you know, are you washing your hands and and cleaning your hands and using the alcohol hand gel as much as um, possible? There are also certain activities that at least appear to be less less associated with transmission. Um, and again, it goes back to what I was saying. If you're doing something where you have a lot of exertion mm-hmm. and you know, you, you're able to propel, um, you're just breathing harder and you can propel any of the organisms in your mouth further, that's going to be a, a higher risk activity. Something like squash or something like Zumba classes would be higher risk activity. Whereas yoga and Pilates are going to be a lower kind of risk activity because you just don't have that um, exertional um, uh, influence associated with it. You mentioned face coverings or masks. Uh, Dr. Pearl, my first question related to this topic, why is it so important for people to wear face masks or coverings in the first place? 
so, you know, face masks, we have known for a long, long time that face facial coverings are very important uh, for several reasons. One is they, they're, they do what we call source control. So they're actually, if you um, are asymptomatic and actually have an organism, not only COVID, but influenza or, you know, other other organisms that are transmissible, it prevents you from potentially giving it to somebody else. So a mask controls the source. It's keeping it from you uh, in those activities we were talking about when you're exerting yourself or whatever, from potentially putting it into air that other people will breathe. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's especially certain types of masks can actually prevent you from inhaling the organism. So it has a dual activity. And some masks are better at some functions than other functions. A lot of what we're trying to do when we current with the current um, discussions is really keeping me unwittingly from giving anything to somebody else and protecting those people that I'm around. Uh, because the kinds of face coverings that we're talking about right now are better at doing that. Uh, so that's why we're doing it. Now, do they work is the next question. And they actually really do work. And I have to say one of the silver linings in this has been our appreciation of how important face masks can be in preventing transmission of respiratory pathogens, especially COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the data have started coming out from uh, epidemiologic studies, outbreak investigations, and they really show that these masks uh, can decrease your risk of acquiring covid by 70%. So this is not a trivial kind of request whatsoever. It's really an evidence-based kind of request. And if you start looking at all the data that's come out, um, whether they look at individual outbreaks or some of the impacts on large populations, the implementation of, of of getting people to mask and complying with wearing masks has been significant. So it's not something that's gonna flip the switch and change an outbreak overnight, but it is a very, very important thing for us to do, not only for us individually, but for people around us, especially those that are immunocompromised or fragile in some way, the elderly, but also for the large population is these kinds of efforts absolutely will drive down the transmission rates. Sure. And are there any tips you would give to folks on what kinds of coverings or masks people should wear and when they should be wearing them? So the the most important thing to be doing with wearing masks is wearing masks when you're around people. You know, if you're outside mowing your lawn or outside running and you're by yourself, you don't need to be wearing a mask. When you really should be wearing a mask is when you're going to the grocery store, when you're going into environments when there are other people. If you live in a home with somebody who's immunocompromised, you may want to wear it. But really the mask wearing is about any any kind of setting where you're in 
or potentially going to be in a gathering. And it's, you know, again, as I said, it's to not only protect you, but to protect those people around mm-hmm. you. Um, then in terms of what kinds of masks. So any covering is better than no covering. Uh, certainly some of the medical masks are better than cloth masks, but cloth masks do work. The one important thing about a cloth mask is they again can get contaminated, so you need to wash them, um, and at least daily. Uh, and if you're using cloth masks, you want, may want to switch them every four hours or so and, and just have clean ones on hand because they will capture... In those organisms, and they can survive for a period of time on the cloth. So you you want to keep that clean. Um, if you're making your own masks and you have a cloth mask, a really cute little trick is uh, the use of nylon stocking materials. The things that are in women's stockings um, is actually a very good barrier. And so if you can put that as a lining in your mask, it ends up being much more effective. So, you know, those would be my my thing. I mean, there's sort of a gradation of how good they are, but anything is better than nothing. And then the other key thing is when you're wearing a mask, you must cover your nose and your mouth. Um, I see a lot of people running around with their mask under their nose. That doesn't do any good. You need to really make sure that you've got it on top of your nose and your mouth. And you you want it not necessarily sealed, but as close as it can be onto your face. And yes, that's uncomfortable when it's hot, but it's a small price to pay given the risks of getting COVID. Um, sure, absolutely. And I've been seeing some masks with um, those exhalation valves. Um, Any thoughts on those masks? So I'm not a fan of the exhalation valves because my worry is that if you are colonized or if you do actually have COVID and you're one of those people who's asymptomatic, that you could still exhale it. And so I think it gives people a false sense of security. You know, people use those because they are a little bit easier to breathe in, but the reality is that you are then not protecting the people around you. And so you need to recognize that that's the downside of those particular types of masks. Sure. We, we talked about the general principles of mitigating or lowering risks. I wanted to go a little further into what happens if the risks happened so to speak, and you've been exposed. How exactly do you define someone who has been exposed? So um, there are uh, there are different ways that people define exposure, and that also is changing um, as this epidemic pandemic changes. It's evolving over time. Uh, You know, initially the exposures were really very much related to travel. Now we talk more about hotspots. So right now, for example, Texas is a hotspot. So we are exposed in the community. Um, But the other thing that's important is the kinds of activities that you're doing um, and, and what you're doing in those activities. So when I think of exposure, the things that I'm really most interested in is, were you in any kind of high-risk settings? And we've talked about that a little bit. Were you in bars? Were you in places, closed indoor places with lots of people who were not masks? 
So, you know, looking for an exposure that potentially could be significant. Mm -hmm. Um, How long were you there? So were you there for more than 15 minutes? Were you standing near people for more than um, uh, 15 minutes? You know, were there any kind of activities going on in those settings that may have increased the risk? So was there a choir that was singing where, you know, again, you'd have that forced exhalation of air? Um, Were you in a gym where a lot of people were panting? Uh, So just really looking for, again, any kind of activity that may propel these organisms more than normal. Traditionally, those have been much better defined in healthcare settings than they have in community settings. But um, so those would be the kinds of things that would put you at risk for a significant exposure. And then, of course, if you knowing if you know that you were with someone who had COVID, and the most important thing about that is the. 24 to 48 hours before they develop symptoms and the first few days after the symptoms are the highest risk time period. If that exposure is a home exposure, you're much more likely to have what we consider significant um, interactions than say you might if it's a non-home kind of exposure. So family exposures, again, tend to be much more likely to to cause transmission or to result in transmission than non-family exposures. Uh, but those are the kinds of um, characteristics that are going to put you at higher risk of acquiring um, COVID-19. Sure. And so I wanted to ask you if you could, if you could delve into the difference between uh, quarantine versus isolation. I, I hear these words kind of sometimes used interchangeably and, and it can be a little confusing. Could you clarify the difference between quarantine and isolation? The difference between isolation and quarantine is um, actually more than a semantic. Essentially, both are uh, strategies that are designed to protect the public by preventing exposure to people who have a a contagious disease. So we use this not just with COVID, but with tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. Isolation separates sick, sick people with a contagious disease from people who are not sick. And quarantine separates and restricts movement of people who were exposed to a contagious disease to see if they become sick. So that's actually the difference. So um, isolation tends to be when you've got the COVID infection that you're going to end up being isolated. And quarantine is restricting your movement. So if you were exposed to somebody with COVID and we say we want you to go home and and you're going to be in quarantine uh, for 14 days. That's what that particular um, uh, word means. In general, the way I think of quarantine is that it's more of a public health activity. Um, Isolation tends to be something we'll ask you to do, uh, but that's not always 100% true in, in terms of 
the legal authorities to actually do those two activities. Sure. And so quarantine, staying at home, away from others, in case you might be sick for 14 days, and isolation is is when you're sick and, and you need to stay at home while you're infectious. Could you go into how how long you should be isolating for if you are actually sick with COVID-19? Yes, absolutely. So uh, what I'm first going to say is that as more and more data is becoming available, the the recommendations for isolation particularly have been changing. Uh, but right now, if you are a normal host, uh, meaning that you don't have any underlying diseases and you have a relatively mild or even maybe moderate case of COVID, Uh, you would be isolated. So we don't want you to be in contact with anyone for 10 days from the onset of your symptoms. Sure. If you have more severe disease uh, and perhaps in the intensive care unit, then we extend that period for, for to 20 days. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, For example, nursing home patient, patients who are in nursing home, et cetera. But in general, for most of the people we're going to be talking about, it's 10 days. Uh, Now, if you're exposed, it's different. So the incubation period, the period from when you're exposed to when you can actually, the last point of time we think you can develop symptoms is 14 days. So in that particular instance, you're quarantined for 14 days from your exposure. The median time to developing symptoms is about five days. So in that time frame that you're quarantined, if you're going to develop symptoms, most people will develop it around day five to six. but then they are still going to be isolated if they develop symptoms for 10 days from the symptom onset. So let me just confirm a little further, if I may, an example. So it looks like if, if I was exposed to someone with COVID-19 and then say I just get tested a few days after I was last exposed and it comes back negative... I still have to quarantine for the full 14 days? Correct. Can you explain why? Uh, Because even though your test is negative, you could actually develop the infection the next day or the next day or the next day. Mm -hmm. So many of us actually will tell you that while you can get tested, it may be actually giving you a false sense of security because you still can develop the disease in that 14-day period. Sure, sure. So all of this testing and quarantine or isolation and days to wait and symptoms to check, it can all get so confusing. And I was wondering, Dr. Pearl, if you minded going through just a few different scenarios for our listeners um, and what someone should do in these particular situations. Absolutely. So say I've been exposed, but I have no symptoms and I get tested and am waiting on my test results. What should I do? First of all, when we're talking about this, what I'd like to say is let's assume that your, that your exposure is a significant exposure. 
You know, some people think that I walked by somebody in the street and that's a significant exposure, and we wouldn't consider that a significant exposure. So for the purpose of your examples, let's assume that this was a really close contact and it was more than 15 minutes and you weren't wearing your mask, um, you know, so we really think you were exposed. Mm -hmm. So you're exposed and whoever it is, whether it's the health department or your employer or whatever says, you're going to go home and you're going to be um, quarantined for 14 days. And you say, no, I want to go get tested. So you get tested. What we're going to tell you is that these tests are one a little bit less reliable. In fact, some of them are a lot less reliable when you don't have symptoms. So they can miss the fact that you may have... Infection, you may be so early that you just don't have a lot of virus around that the test can actually pick up. So it's below the lower limits of detection is what we are looking for. Um, or you may, it may not have been you're one of those people who it takes a little bit longer for you to develop the infection. You're not a five-day, you're not developing it on day five. You're actually going to develop it on day 10. And so for those reasons, you're still going to remain quarantined for 14 days. What I find is some people, even though um, the test doesn't really make a difference, they find it a little bit reassuring. And I think that that's, you know, if, if that's what they want to do, that's absolutely fine as long as we have adequate test supplies. But I do caution everyone that just because you get tested doesn't mean you get out of quarantine. Right. Sure. In that same scenario, say I actually do have symptoms and am waiting for my test results, what would you recommend I do? Okay, so that's actually a very good question also. And, um, you know, this is, we're all going to tell you when you've been exposed and you develop symptoms, we do want you to get tested. It's important for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, it, it, if, for example, you start getting sicker, then it helps us in terms of treatments, etc. So we do think it's important that if you have symptoms to get tested. Um, but what you should do while you're waiting for your test results is that you do want to, again, now you're isolated, so you want to remain isolated and separated from other people. Um, if you're living in a house with other people, you want to stay in one room. You also want to make sure that you're very careful about washing down um, any of the surfaces that could be common surfaces, faucets, uh, you know, any what we call high-touch surfaces, countertops, you want to just make sure that those, those surfaces are all um, uh, wiped down. You want to have very good hand hygiene and alcohol hand gel just to make sure that you're, if you have contaminated hands, that you're not going to contaminate the environment. So, you know, it's again, common sense. You want to separate from other people, but you also want to make sure that any ways of transmitting the virus are are, um, are, are stopped. Of course, when you're um, not in your room, you should be wearing a mask um, and you should really be staying away from other people because you don't want to put them at risk at all. So again, just isolating yourself away from those other individuals. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. So 
earlier we already established that if you were exposed and your test is negative, but you have no symptoms, you should still quarantine for the 14 days. What do you do if your test is positive and you have no symptoms? So if your test is positive and you have no symptoms, what we uh, recommend is that you are then uh, isolated because you at least have a positive test uh, for 10 days after the date of the um, test. What I would tell some of your your listeners is that sometimes symptoms develop. So while you may not have symptoms at the moment you're tested, they can develop. And the most common one that, that I've heard about is uh, all of a sudden people will say, yes, I, I couldn't smell acutely. You know, they just know, notice all of a sudden they can't, their taste their sense of taste and their sense of smell disappears. And this is a classic uh, sign or symptom of COVID infection. And, um, and, but they have been asymptomatic before that. Uh, So that would be an example. But nonetheless, to go back to your question, what I would say is that from the day your test is positive, for 10 days after that, you're going to be isolated. So again, just to reiterate, you're going to, you know, stay, you're going to be in your own room or away from other people in your house. You're going to be making sure that surfaces are cleaned. You're going to be making sure that you're not sharing utensils and um, whatever. If you are, you know, near anyone else, you're absolutely going to be wearing your mask. Um, and you're going to be using alcohol hand gel all the time to make sure that you keep your hands um, clean. And just to tell everyone, both soap and water and alcohol are very, very effective at killing this virus. What if your test is negative, but you do have symptoms? So that depends a lot on what's going on in the community. It's possible that you have what we consider an exposure and you don't develop COVID. Um, And this, it's going to become, this is going to become more and more of an issue as we enter into respiratory virus season, where we commonly have a lot of different viruses circulating at the same time. So your COVID test may be negative, but your rhinovirus test may be positive or your flu test is positive. So there are a couple of things to really think about. If there's very little COVID around and your COVID test is negative, it's quite possible you just don't have COVID and you have another respiratory virus. And in those particular cases, in general, we just follow the the rules that we follow for any respiratory virus, which is um, you need to be afebrile and improving, and you should uh, be, again, wearing a mask when you're outside and being very cautious. If you're in the kind of setting that we're in right now in Texas, where we just know that we have, that the COVID virus is endemic and it's all over, Many of us are going to say, despite the fact that your test is negative, we're going to continue to recommend that you um, 
you remain isolated. So it really depends on the situation in this particular case. But I think this is the time where you can ask for advice because it's it's tricky and there is no right answer. I tend to err on the side of being much more conservative and saying, look, you know, as long as you can do what you need to do, I want you to stay home. But for example, right now in Texas, we do have a shortage of healthcare workers. And so we have to think creatively about these things, about how do we keep everyone, um, um, how do we keep people safe, yet also make sure that we fill and maintain the the workforce needs that we currently have. So I think that's um, harder to answer absolutely. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I will say, as I mentioned earlier, is that you can have false negative tests. It may be early on. The test may not have been done properly. Um, these tests, you really have to get a good sample. So that's the other thing that would influence a lot of the decision making in this case um, in terms of whether or not we think you actually have COVID or you don't have COVID. So these are the, this is the one thing that's tricky and I really recommend that you work with your provider to come up with a strategy that's safe given the information that you have. And, and finally, what, what would you recommend uh, someone do if they test positive and, and have symptoms? So if you test positive and have symptoms, um, you should absolutely isolate immediately. You know, you just want to protect those that are around you. In terms of what do you do to help you through this viral illness, and there's a a spectrum of symptoms that people have from, as you've heard, asymptomatic to really feeling like they've been hit by a truck with a lot of muscle aches and fever, etc., So, you know, hydration is really important. Um, You can use um, uh, certainly any antipyretics to control your fevers, uh, to just make you feel more comfortable. But, you know, this is the time where, you know, you're really kind of doing what we recommend for any kind of respiratory virus. You know, just hydration, rest, and um, anything that's going to make you feel more comfortable in terms of an antipyretic. What we do worry about with this particular virus is that there is more shortness of breath. Um, and sometimes some shortnesses of breath is um, expected. But if this becomes progressive, then you actually really do need to seek medical care. And if you're going to seek medical care, you should call ahead and say, I have COVID infection, so that your primary care provider, or if you're going to an emergency room, can prepare to accept you and have all the precautions in place. Sure. You know, and then the other thing is, is that if you've started to feel better and then all of a sudden start developing shortness of breath, that also can be very worrisome, and we would want you to seek medical care uh, much more quickly. Um, we do know that with this particular infection, that there is a period where people can get better, and then they're, after they start feeling better is the period where they have a significant immune response, and they can start actually becoming very dramatically short of breath. 
the other thing to note with this particular infection is that there are some unusual complications. And um, if you, for example, all of a sudden have a swollen arm or a swollen leg, we have been seeing uh, venous thrombi with this particular infection. And um, so any of those consequences would be something where you would want to seek medical care. Uh, some individuals and people are sending patients home with something called an oxygen saturation monitor. Mm -hmm. And they're monitoring their um, satur oxygen saturations at home. This is something that's particularly useful with people who have underlying COPD, lung diseases, uh, because they normally are a little bit short of breath, so when are you actually getting significantly more short of breath can be more difficult to sort out. And so um, then when you get that oxygen saturation, your provider is going to give you specific instructions. So when you drop to this point, we want you to come to the emergency room. Great. Thank you for that, Dr. Pearl. Uh, just walking through each of those scenarios really does provide more clarity. It, it can be tough to follow the right guidance just because there's just so much information out there and it can cause quite a bit of confusion. Can you share with us what your guidance is for returning to work once you're finished with either quarantine or isolation? My recommendations are that you, you know, should go back to work and continue the strategies that are currently in place at your, at your workplace. Um, we currently recommend that everyone wear masks, so you should be wearing your mask. Um, if you get questioned by your coworkers, again, as we just spoke about early on in this, the mask is very effective at preventing any kind of transmission. Although, as we've also talked about, you don't have any live virus after day nine, which is why we keep you in quarantine for 10 days. Um, so go back, good hand hygiene, keep yourself rested and um, you know don't exert yourself there are certainly people who have felt fatigue for uh, longer periods of time so do not be surprised if you are more tired than you have been um, and so it's just really important that you continue to rest and and keep yourself hydrated but also be safe um, the other thing that I will comment on is sometimes your coworkers, if they know you've had a COVID infection, are very frightened, and you need to just reiterate that you are no longer infectious, that it is safe for you to return to work, and it's important for your leadership and your bosses to actually recognize that it is very safe for you to be back in that environment. Great. Really appreciate you sharing the latest guidance, Dr. Pearl. As you and I both know, the guidance can change by the day, uh, as this is so novel. I know the list of problems that Texas is facing while fighting COVID-19 is long, but are there any particular issues that strike you right now, issues that the general public can really help their doctors with? I would say the major thing we need to do right now in Texas is really, really encourage everyone to wear masks, wash your hands all the time, and social distance. I mean, I think if we can get those three things as individuals, 
we really can start doing what we've talked about, flattening that curve. So that's the single most important thing I think we can do right now, especially given the trajectory of this epidemic. We have got to really flatten this curve. Um, I'm so worried about the potential implications that it can have for our fellow Texans, just in terms of morbidity and mortality, as well as the um, impact on the healthcare system. So it's really very important. A uh, second thing is, as I've tried to reiterate a couple of times, once you've had COVID and you're outside of that 10-day period, you are no longer infectious. Anything we can do to reduce any of the stigma associated with this is going to be important. Um, you know, these people who have had this infection have really already suffered, and we want to do as much as possible to integrate them back into the community. If you've had COVID and you're interested, you can certainly donate plasma. Um, that's one of the treatment strategies that's being used. Uh, how efficacious it is is still um, something that's being studied, but certainly there is a lot of um, need for people to be supportive of ongoing medical research. The public health authorities have their hands full and they're working extremely hard trying to do contact tracing. The earlier they can get the contract tracing done, the more disease transmission they're going to prevent. We keep on hearing of stories where people aren't cooperating with the public health authorities or the individuals doing contact tracing. So let people know that this is something that's important. It's patriotic. It's the right thing to do. Help them. Um, anything we can do to really sort of contribute to the public health response is going to be important in, um, in you know, mitigating and really continuing to flatten the curve, which, you know, has to be our major, major um, effort at this point. Um, currently, we are really struggling getting that message out. All of those messages I just talked to, to young people. So if you've got influencers out there, people who can send the message about masking, social distancing, and hand hygiene, integrate them. I mean, get them involved in this because we really need their help. We need to make this cool in schools. We need to make it cool in environments where we're seeing a lot of transmission and we need to make this the new normal. Really appreciate those examples of of how just we as everyday folks, the general public can can help um, in any way during the pandemic. Before we wrap up here, are there any final closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I just really want to reiterate how important personal responsibility is in all of this. Um, this is, you know, an example of a situation where we are not going to be able to test ourselves out of this. We're not going to be able to use drugs to get out of this. We aren't going to be able to use the medical system to get out of this. Those are pillars and supports, but this is really going to be about our individual personal responsibility. 
to just go back, you know, wear your masks, social distance, hand hygiene are key, key things to do. Send that message out there. We are going into the flu season right now. We're going to have a lot of other respiratory viruses circulating. And so this is going to get even more confusing and difficult for um, the medical community to differentiate who's got COVID versus other infections. So we really need people to support us. Get your flu vaccine. It's going to be critical this year. Make sure your kids are vaccinated. Make sure that you get your mothers and your grandmothers vaccinated. I mean, we really need to have a huge community effort out right now just taking care of ourselves and doing whatever we can to um, provide us with the support we need in um, not only the medical community, but in the school community, in businesses, you know, all of this is going to help the entire integrated community. So uh, whatever you can do. And of course, if you want, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities right now to contribute to scientific research, get involved in it, um, to donate. So do all of these things really to help, uh, again, flatten the curve, advance our knowledge so that we can really um, uh, change the dynamic that's occurring not only in Texas, but in the country right now. Well, that concludes today's discussion on COVID-19, knowing your risks, mitigating or lowering those risks, navigating the confusion of testing, quarantine, and isolation, and what you can do to help fight COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Pearl, for joining this podcast and and sharing your valuable expertise and, and time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and stay safe. And for our listeners, thank you all for joining us for today's episode of TMA's Practice Well podcast featuring infectious disease specialist, Dr. Trish Pearl. To access a transcript of this podcast, including links and lists of resources discussed in this episode, please visit TMA's COVID-19 resource page at www.texmed.org forward slash COVID-19. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. To claim CME for today's program, go to www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for your podcast and follow the instructions to claim CME.